Welcome to the All Things Work podcast from the Society for Human Resource Management. I'm your host, Tony Lee, head of editorial operations here at CHIRM, and thank you for joining us. All Things Work is an audio adventure where we talk with thought leaders and tastemakers to give you an insider's perspective on all things work. As we continue to bring you coverage on how the world of workers responding to the coronavirus pandemic, we're focusing today on the experience of older workers, especially as they're impacted by the recession, the economic downturn, whatever you want to call what's going on right now. We know that employees age 65 and older are a greater risk to contract COVID, and they're also more likely to have a job that puts them in frequent close contact with others, which further increases their susceptibility of getting the virus. Now, older workers' troubles are further complicated, often by ageist attitudes that emerge during the hiring process, which results in longer periods of unemployment and lost wages before they're able to find a new job. So when job seekers think they're being treated unfairly or discriminated against by employers because of their age, they often turn to attorneys for assistance. And the legal world is predicting a deluge of lawsuits from older employees who believe that companies may be using the pandemic as an excuse to remove them from the workplace. Joining me to discuss that trend are two attorneys who specialize in employment law, Tom Spiegel and Natalie McLaughlin. Representing employees is Tom. Tom is the founder of the Spiegel Law Firm, a practice devoted to protecting employees from unlawful employment practices and then help them fight wrongful termination. Tom is a senior contributor to Forbes, and he frequently weighs in on the latest developments in employment law across a wide range of news outlets. Representing employers is Natalie McLaughlin. Natalie is a partner at Voorhees, Sater, Seymour, and Peace in Columbus, Ohio. Her practice focuses on a broad range of labor and employment law matters, and she's experienced litigating cases in areas including harassment, discrimination, and wrongful discharge. Natalie also helps employers develop personnel policies that are in compliance with employment law. Well, this is going to be a good discussion. Natalie and Tom, welcome to All Things Work. Happy to be here. Thank you for having us. Yes, absolutely. So I think what makes sense is we should start kind of at the beginning here. There have been economic downturns cyclically, repeatedly in the U.S. economy. And it seems like every time that happens, older workers are disproportionately affected. So, Tom, I'll start with you. Why do you think that is? You know, I think there are multiple reasons. I mean, I think one is there is, you know, there is age discrimination in the workplace. And I don't think most people who um, follow this field would, would deny that. And sometimes they're, they're the first to go because they have the perception that they may not uh, be as productive. I do think that there are, when companies are looking to, you know, survive in a downturn, it's a matter of cash flow, and they're looking to cut labor costs, one of the first place they look are some of their higher earners. And who do those happen to be? Well, they're often people who've been there longer, who have the tenure. So there's an unfortunate confluence, which isn't necessarily discriminatory, you know, with trying to cut those costs and impacting workers who make more. That makes perfect sense. So Natalie, when you're thinking of it from an employer perspective, how do employers make sure that when they go to cut the most expensive folks, they're not doing it in some discriminatory way? Sure, that's a great question. You know, I think most employers, I would I would certainly like to think in my field, go in with, you know, good intentions and not to intentionally discriminate when making their layoff decisions. Um, however, sometimes, you know, discrimination can come up even if it's not intentional. So, 
I am always counseling employers when they're considering layoffs to be aware of not only intentional discriminatory decisions, of course, which is something they don't want to engage in, but also they need to consider adverse impact or disparate impact of their determinations. So if they are you know, laying off workers and it has a disproportionate impact on older employees, as often layoffs may do, they should make sure they are carefully vetting their criteria, make sure the individuals who are making the decisions are appropriately trained uh, on how to make those decisions and that they know the criteria they're using and that they try to be as objective as possible so that they can, you know, say that really, even though there was an impact on older workers, the decision was made based on, you know, reasonable factors other than age. Now, we have heard questions, and Natalie, I'm going to follow up with you on it, from employers who have reached out to us to say, in a period where we are having widespread layoffs, we may be targeting a type of position that we are eliminating because we don't need that position now. And it might be, you know, a, a hospitality manager, even a security guard, something like that. However, the vast majority of our employees who fill that position are older. And we're still hearing threats from those folks. What, what would you say in response? So ultimately, if they are making the decision for legitimate business reasons, such as, you know, to cut costs or, you know, this position is no longer, you know, needed given the, the way things are playing out, that is very likely to be defensible. Now, it does not mean that they're not going to still receive litigation threats, but a disparate impact type claim itself is fairly difficult to prove because ultimately if the employer can show that there is a reasonable factor for making that decision, the employment decision will be justified. So for example, as you indicated, if a position is no longer needed due to the change of the employer's business and they need to eliminate that position because of that, that is likely to be a defensible decision. But of course, they want to make sure when they are assessing which employees to lay off that they are not allowing, you know, unfair biases to creep into their decisions. So if they're considering things like performance and productivity, they want to be, again, as objective as possible and make sure that their managers and supervisors are not unfairly treating their older workers and making those decisions. It makes perfect sense. So Tom, from the description Natalie gave, it sounds like we shouldn't be seeing any litigation out there, but that's not the case. So what what typically goes wrong in this scenario? I mean, I think it's often in a rogue manager, in my experience. It's not, I mean, sometimes you will see a company-wide, you know, effort that is discriminatory, but a lot of times it's, particularly if it's a larger company, it's somebody who didn't read the memo or, you know, they're trying to meet short-term goals and, you know, they're trying to get rid of folks who in their mind are not productive. And then they've also made comments that suggest that the motive was discriminatory. You know, like, hey, we need new blood in here. Hey, we need folks who are, you know, particularly now, like when folks are working at home, there's a greater reliance on technology. They'll make, say, make some comment like, we, you know, we need people who are native to the technology. Anything that would belie something that, uh, you know, belie a discriminatory intent that they are, you know, making the decision on the basis of age. So it's, I'm sure as Natalie would, would, would certainly, anybody on the manager side would probably tell you, you know, there's there's what you tell your client and then what really happens. And it's it's often, it's again, the kind of the rogue manager or somebody who's going off the reservation 
Now we're well into the, the the COVID-19 pandemic, so you must be seeing instances from the employee standpoint where that's happening and the comments that this is going to ramp up. Do you buy that? Do you, do you see more instances arising? Yeah, oh, we're already seeing in our intakes, you know, whether we end up bringing these claims, we'll see, but we are seeing a lot more in our intakes with age discrimination, you know, people who are over 40 who have been who have been laid off. And then the question becomes for us is, you know, was this partially, you know, partially due to age? So I, and there's no question we're going to see more of it. And when you've got, you know, mass layoffs like this and older workers who for discriminatory reasons are not or are disproportionately impacted, there's no question that you're going to see litigation because there's this, there's often this gray area, right? You know, you've got good attorneys like Natalie who are saying like, this is the advice I gave the company and we did it in this way. And then you got people like me who are saying, oh, that's not how this particular decision was carried out, you know, and that's what that's what litigation is for. So I, I think there's no question that it's, it's gonna happen. Yeah, so N- Natalie, one of the things, one of the interesting stats I, I, I we've published is that nearly 75% of workers age 65 and older cannot telecommute either because they have a job that requires physical presence or they have a bandwidth bandwidth issue and don't, can't connect. So when you're working with an employer that is looking to cut back, is there a way that you can make sure that there's not disparate impact given that older workers tend to be the ones who can't telecommute from home? Yeah, that's a really great point and I think a tough question. You know, ultimately from the employer perspective, if they were, you know, making a decision as to, you know, who to retain based solely on the ability of somebody to be at work. And and if they, you know, are not in a job that they can telecommute and they're refusing to come in and it's not due to some sort of, you know, medical condition, because then, of course, we're in, you know, disability ADA accommodation world. But if they're, you know, simply will not come in due to age and there's no way to accommodate uh, that position, then, you know, the employer is in a really tough spot as far as what to do. I certainly, you know, would encourage employers to the extent they can to try and be accommodating in this situation, even if they are not uh, legally required to issue that accommodation under the ADEA. But sometimes that's just not going to be possible to retain people, you know, on their employment and paying benefits and all that sort of thing when they're not able to come into work. I would note that, you know, certainly there are a lot of unemployment laws now in the states, including Ohio, are providing unemployment benefits to individuals who are 65 and older who are unable to work, and and therefore that's the reason that they aren't earning an income. So, Natalie, to follow up on that, you also have an issue of employers well-meaningly perhaps, and we've heard some instances of this, saying, well, I, I want to protect my older employees because they're this most susceptible group in the pandemic. And so I don't want to force them to come in, but because they can't telecommute, I don't have a job for them. What's going on with that? So an employer absolutely cannot force an employee who is in a high-risk group, including those 65 and older, to not come in. That is a complete no-no, even if it's for benevolent reasons out of care for that individual. Uh, If the individual 
makes the request, then I, I, you know, I would encourage employers to consider if they can reasonably grant that request, especially if it's otherwise been a productive, you know, good employee who you don't want to lose. We all are hoping that this is not going to be something that's permanent for our future dealing with this pandemic. And, you know, they may want to consider that. That being said, they may start down that path and realize after a period of time if the employee is still unable to come to work and, and unable to telecommute that it's you know not a long-term sustainable accommodation. I think the fact that they've operated in good faith and at least tried to do it, I would I think gets them somewhere, you know, to show that we really tried to make this work. But at a certain point in time, if somebody is continuing to not be able to come into work, then that becomes a problem. Yeah. So, Tom, let's say you've heard from an employee who says, I'd like to come to work. I I love my job, but I have a health condition. I'm 65. I can't come to work, but you you can't fire me, right? What what do you say to that person? Maybe. (laughs) Right. Uh, I think I don't disagree with Natalie's answer at all. I do. You know, what, what I would key in on what you said is what's the health condition, right? It, you know, do, do you have some condition that puts us in the ADA category where we are talking about reasonable accommodations? So that's where I would go with that. If it's that they are, and we are seeing a fair amount of this, you know, I, I am high risk because I'm older or I'm, high, I'm worried and so I don't want to go in. I would not bring that bring that case. You know, uh, I might try to have a conversation with somebody like Natalie, but I certainly wouldn't. I wouldn't litigate it unless we're in ADA. We know, which I think is a whole nother a whole nother avenue, and for you know employers, a can of worms about you know where that where that accommodation when and where that accommodation needs to happen. Right. So let's take it one step further, Tom. I'm a 65 year old employee. I'm in very good health. I'd really like to come in. My spouse. My child, my parent is uh, compromised and I don't want to risk them. Where is the protection? Is there protection? Um, Probably not. I mean, under the latest EEOC guidance, uh, you know, they suggest that just because you have someone at home that is uh, that is a higher risk, you know, it's not going to get you protection under the ADA. Again, this would take a. a, a, um, another twist in the fact pattern here. But as long as we're playing with it, you know, if they're if there was some indication that the employer was uh, making the decision, a discriminatory decision on the basis of the fact that this maybe even a benevolent one, that this person is affiliated with somebody who is at higher risk or has a disability, then there may be some cause of action. But just the mere fact that somebody is at home who's at higher risk, unfortunately, is not going to give them a lot of leverage. Yeah. So, uh, Tom, talk more about the differences that you're seeing among employers based on company size. Um, you know, we often hear very different stories. Can, can you can you shed some light there? Absolutely. Um, it's a it's a it's a big difference whether somebody has you know an in-house HR department to advise them, and perhaps in-house counsel than with the with the smaller companies, particularly those with fifty or fewer employees. Uh, you know, where we are seeing the biggest impact on this. I mean, in addition to the usual, uh, I think, difficulties that smaller employers have, you know, if they've got a thorny ADA question, they may not have counsel they rely on regularly, you know, and that's where I think they can get in trouble as they're trying to deal with this on the fly and they can run afoul of those laws. But particularly with the, you know, expanded FMLA leave, uh, which, of course, without exemption, you know, unless they get an exemption from DOL applies to 
all employers. Um, and that we've seen some just real confusion on the part of these smaller employers about how this is going to work because they're not used to having to deal with the FMLA, which as we all know, is a very complicated and detailed statute. So it does that the resources that a company has to deal with these really difficult situations does make a difference. Yeah. So Natalie, when you hear from a small company, uh, an HR department of one, for example, who's just not sure what to do, where do you guide them? How do you guide them? Yeah, I will say that during the past few months, I usually, you know, am advising all sorts of sizes of companies, but my advising has been <laughs> very skewed to the small employers. Um, I, I, as, as Tom indicated, I, and I think you're absolutely correct, a lot of large employers have more robust teams that can really dig into the laws and advise the companies on what to do, but small employers are lacking that. And I, you know, I have certainly tried to provide counsel on here are the laws and here are the risks and the decisions. Even if a decision is lawful, here are the here are the risks involved. But my concern and why I agree with Tom, I think that we are going to see a lot of litigation is I have to believe for every company that I'm hopefully advising correctly in this area, there are 10 more companies that are not reaching out and seeking legal advice and just trying to I don't want to say wing it as it's a very hard time, but these these laws are coming out just rapid fire and the situations are changing every day and they may make a decision in no way intending it to be discriminatory, but it's really easy to run afoul. And so I think we are going to see particularly a lot of litigation involving smaller companies that either didn't have, you know, the human resources support to be able to really advise them appropriately or, or didn't have a, you know, internal, external legal counsel they could uh, run a decision by and vet before proceeding. Yeah. So again, let's play that out a little bit, Natalie, if you don't mind. The, the typical question that we hear from SURE members along this line is, I am a very small company. I'm in an employment at will state. So I need to reduce ex- headcount and expenses to survive. And so to do that, I am going to target employees who are paid most. And I have the right to fire, because I'm in an employment at will state, those who will most be detrimental to me recovering. What have I done wrong when mm-hmm. I when I lay those people off and they happen to be older? So on its face, you know, that would be a neutral criteria, selecting individuals based on, you know, who are our highest paid individuals, because certainly you could have individuals who are highly paid who are under 40. However, you know, with just basing it on that factor, I think you run a higher risk. Uh, And that's what I'm always trying to counsel is, you know, what, what is the risk here? And even if you make a decision solely based on that, as opposed to taking into consideration other factors that may get you to where you want to be, do you run a greater risk? So, you know, in making those decisions based solely on salary, it's very likely to have a disproportionate impact on Uh, your older employees. And if it does that, then you need to be very prepared to defend that decision and as why that uh, why that was reasonable to just use that factor to arrive at your, you know, layoff determination and to realize that if really that's the only factor that you are using, that I think it is more subject to being attacked. And with litigation, even if you would ultimately prepare prevail on that 
um, just being in litigation, uh, as I'm sure Tom would agree, is such a costly and time-consuming process that that's already a loss for an employer to get tied up in that. So they really want to set themselves up as best they can to make a decision that's entirely defensible in making their layoff uh, determination. Yeah. Tom, is there anything you would advise an employee in this situation? You would prefer them not to feel like they're being discriminated against. So given that, what would you advise? Somebody who's been laid off who's in the over 40 category in a RIF, is that what you mean? Yep. Yeah, I mean, I think we always start with a conversation with people who come to us. You know, what, of course, understanding that this is a difficult time, that there are, you know, emotions run high, but just like I'm sure Natalie would counsel her clients, you know, you know, don't make your decision about how to, you know, how to proceed or whether to proceed with some kind of action, whatever it may be, from a demand letter on up with your former employer, solely based on emotion. You know, what's really going on here? And let's get some more, you know, let's get let's get some more facts. And did they, you know, did they lay off everybody they laid off? You know, were they over 40? Were you in the higher category? Were there any other comments? Were there any other indicia, any other thing the company did that suggests this was based on age? And depending on what that answer is, then we go from there. You know, if there's, if they say, you know, no, I, they, my manager seemed up and up and he just said I was getting let go and this is the reason why and I don't have any, I don't have any evidence that it was based on, on age. And a lot of people are surprised to learn that, you know, it's perfectly acceptable for a company to you know, make a decision to get rid of their higher earners because they're they're trying to reduce labor costs, even though those may be correlated with folks who are older. And sometimes when people, when they hear that and they're like, oh, okay, well, as Natalie said, I don't want to get into really expensive, time-consuming litigation when I could spend that time looking for another job. Now, again, if there are factors that suggest otherwise, the manager did say something, they've got an email, they've got a text, you know, the manager said something in the exit interview, this is for your, you know, this is for your own good. It's dangerous here. You'd be surprised at what people say. Maybe Natalie would. I'm sure the people who do this work are not. You know, it's for your own good, or we need people who are better on Zoom. Whatever, any kind of things that people might say, that I'd be like, you know what? That suggests that this this may be more than just trying to be a cost savings. And then it becomes, you know, what's what's the art of the possible here? What are you looking for as you know, are you just looking for a better severance? Are you looking for, you know, what are, and short of all out litigation, you know, what, what is a win for you here? Is it getting released from a non-compete? I mean, there are a bunch of different ways to, to get to guess that don't involve me suing one of Natalie's clients in federal court. And then we both got an expensive and lengthy process ahead of us. You know, sometimes that's what you've got to do. But I think my perspective for my clients is, is there something actionable here? And if so, what is it that you're after? Um, because if we can get to something that's easy for the easy for the company to do, if I'm talking to Natalie and I'm like, look, you know, we can resolve this without any litigation if you just do X, and if it's an easy gift for them, well, then sure, let's let's go down that path um, rather than be filing a complaint in state and federal court. So, Tom, let's take it one step further to something we haven't really seen lately, if at all, folks who were furloughed and now are already starting getting called back. But again, we're seeing examples of selective callback. Is that the inverse of selected firing? People are called, but older people aren't called back. Right. I mean, there's a there's a, I get two bites of the apple, right? Yeah. So absolutely, I think that's another another category is who 
who gets called back to work. And it's the, the exact same process in reverse as, as a layoff. Who's getting brought back in and is, are there factors that are, that are related to age? It's the same set of questions I'd be asking. Yeah. So, you know, Natalie, same topic. Again, we're hearing from folks who say, well, I can only bring back a handful of people. I want the people who are my top performers. And my top performers, what if they don't include my older employers, employees? Am I okay? <laughs> um, absolutely. I think that's a great that's a great question that you've asked because and and I fully agree with everything Tom has said um, that everything that comes before and after the layoff determination can really uh, make an impact on on how we perceive the layoff. So perhaps the layoff on its face, when you just look at a factor, hey, they they simply selected highest paid salary and that's why they let certain individuals go. But when you dig into it in the facts, you find, as Tom indicated, a comment or something that was said that suggests that really there are other factors in consideration that influence this decision. Now going forward, after you've made the layoff decision, what you do from that point really shows whether that decision was legitimate. So if you decide to ultimately bring people back to make to rehire or to make new hires, if you are only bringing back folks that are younger or if you are only hiring folks that are younger, then I think that can completely call into uh, question whether the decision you made in the first place was legitimate and based on reasonable factors other than age or really whether it was meant to hide, you know, unlawful discrimination. Yeah. One last question for you. Are you seeing any geographic differences here? I mean, obviously, California has always had the, the toughest laws here, but is anything popping up through the pandemic that's that, that you've noted? Well, there's, there's always a lot in California, and I always advise employers, if you can avoid going to California, do so, unless you're in a certain industry and absolutely must go there. It's, it's an expensive proposition to be there. I do think when I'm, when I'm seeing the litigation that's just popping up that's related to a variety of employment-related things to the pandemic, I am seeing more in certain areas of the country that are states that we have typically seen more employment litigation. So that doesn't uh, that doesn't surprise me, and I, I think we will probably continue to see that for this type of litigation as we do for other employment litigation. Yeah, Tom, how about you? Are are you getting inquiries from places that might surprise you? For instance, Florida, Texas, places where COVID seems to be hanging around. You know, it's interesting. We really haven't um, seen a geographical difference. You know, I will say. It will be interesting to see as a result of a lot of the changes that are going on, both COVID related and, and otherwise, as states make changes in their laws. And just for example, like where I practice in, in Virginia, um, you know, where we're based, uh, you know, Virginia has just made sweeping changes to its state level laws, you know, anti-discrimination laws and all this. I mean, we'll see how this is going to play out. But starting July 1st. You know, Virginia is going to be sort of go from being a, a sort of a rocky place, at least in state court, to litigate employment claims to being a place where there's a, um, a significant, uh, for people, at least on my side of the V, a uh, better opportunity to litigate these cases, and, you know, these discrimination cases in state court. So I think we're going to see a big change in, in, in Virginia. So I think, you know, 2020 is probably not done with us yet in terms of uh, the kind of employment changes we're going to see. So I expect we're going to see a lot more of different kinds of litigation in Virginia. But other than that, I haven't noticed a big geographic difference yet. 
If I could note just one other thing, and I do think, you know, when we're considering litigation, the ability of people to uh, replace income and move on is a significant factor in their willingness and interest in bringing litigation. If I think if they can't find other employment, that they're more likely to proceed that route, or if they're in a state that's not providing good unemployment benefits, they may be more likely to proceed that route. So I'll be interested to see, you know, the states that are that are economically doing better coming out of this uh, if we see less litigation than in those where there's really not other jobs for people to get if they've been laid off. Yeah, that's a great point. Well, this has been a fantastic discussion. I I, I have to get a promise from both of you. We, we'll bring you back again as this continues and, and continue this discussion. Anytime. Absolutely. That's wonderful. So that's going to do it for this episode of All Things Work. A big thank you to Tom Spiegel and Natalie McLaughlin for joining me and talking about how the pandemic is impacting claims of age discrimination in the workplace. Now, before we get out of here, I just want to encourage everyone to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, wherever you listen to podcasts. And while you're at it, be sure to give us a five-star rating and leave a review. And also, be sure to check out SHRM on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And you can find all of our episodes and more podcasts on our website at SHRM.org slash podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time on All Things Work.